I'm Olympic and world champion diver, Laura Wilkinson, and this is the Pursuit of Gold podcast. We are unlocking all of the most effective tools to help athletes achieve their highest goals in sport. Each week, you'll hear elite athletes, experts, sports psychologists, trainers, and coaches share their unique advice, tips, and strategies for success. And y'all, we have here with us today, the man, the myth, the legend, Greg Luganis. Now, most people remember him for hitting his head on the diving board and coming back to win Olympic gold in dramatic fashion. And while we do talk about that in this episode, don't you worry, there is so much more to Greg Luganis. He is a four-time Olympian and the only man to win consecutive double gold medals in diving at the Olympic Games. He tells us how learning to perform instead of compete really paved the way for him to rise to a higher level. And you would be so surprised that his favorite moment ever was doing synchro with me at the 2016 Olympic trials. Okay, I, I might be lying a little bit there. That That's my favorite moment, maybe, of Greg's career. <laughs> I digress. Greg is currently the sports director for the Red Bull Cliff Diving World Series. And in our conversation today, he just does such a beautiful job of sharing insight into what made him shine so bright as an athlete. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show so that you don't miss an amazing, inspiring episode. And while you're there, please rate and review us. It really does help continue to bring amazing guests on like the legendary Greg Luganis and for other athletes to find us as well. I believe that there is gold in your future. So let's dive on in to this legendary episode. Greg Luganis, it is my honor and privilege to welcome you to the Pursuit of Gold podcast. Thank you for coming on. Sure. Glad to be here. Now, how are you guys doing right now? Are you staying safe and healthy? Yeah, yeah. Staying so safe and healthy, uh, kind of keeping up with uh, a friend of mine uh, is streaming yoga classes every morning at 9 a.m., Monday through Saturday. So, <laughs> you know, it's, it's hard to keep a schedule, you know? Mm-hmm. Because like, okay, what do you do? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So are you doing yoga six days a week then? Yeah, I'm doing yoga six days a week. My husband and I are where we live. They have a clubhouse and they have a ping pong table. So we've been going over and playing ping pong just about every day. So that's fun. Keeping up with that. Yeah. And working on uh, a program that I'm designing for basically meditation in motion. It's, it's, it's dealing, teaching relaxation, visualization, uh, awareness of breathing and, and that sort of thing. So it's, it's a project that I've been working on. I love it. I love mindfulness and all the things about it. I can't wait until you come out with that. So we will stay tuned. Thank you. Now, you are now the sports director for Red Bull Cliff Diving, like the World Series. And I saw that you just recently announced that you're having to cancel the upcoming season. How are all the athletes handling it and feeling about it? Well, I've checked in with a few athletes here and there. You know, there's they're still figuring out they're they're you have some training. They pulled mats out of the like Mission Viejo, d- different clubs that they've they've been training at, and uh, being able to uh, set up some dry land training for them at home. That's great. But how, like, because I know they don't really get to train a lot of the year. Like going to the actual events is a lot of times where they do their dives. Are they like kind of worried about that challenge getting ready for next year? Uh, you know what? I I think so many of them they're 
they use so many different other activities to keep themselves in shape and fit. And that's a big piece of the puzzle is just staying fit because they've been diving, many of them for so long. I mean, it's kind of muscle memory. And so, you know, that comes back pretty quick. Yeah. Are you kind of helping guide them a little bit with the visualization, the mindset like you were talking about? Yeah, we've touched base and and worked a bit with that. Uh, you know, it's it's and but they're they're really incredible masters of that because if you think about it, most of their training is from a ten meter platform, so they have to practice the first part of their dive, and then and then they practice the second part of the dive, and then they ha- once they get to the venue then they have to put the two pieces together. They're really incredible at handling that that type of situation. Yeah, super mentally strong. Well, personally, as an athlete that was working toward qualifying for the Tokyo 2020 Olympics, I, you know, I was kind of relieved to hear when they were just postponing the Olympics for a year because my coach, Kenny Armstrong, who you know really well, was on the 1980 Canadian Olympic team when the boycott happened. I've heard all about his experience, but you were also on the 1980 Olympic team for the U.S. Can you kind of walk us through what that time was like for you and how you handled it? I mean, all the way up until you know, the, the game started, you know, I, I think I was kind of held in my heart, you know, being able to be there in some way, find some way to get there. Uh, I know that my, my father being of Greek ancestry, he looked into me representing Greece. And so, you know, he, he spoke to several people. I don't know what all he was doing, but it, it didn't happen. But I did train like the the Olympics was going to happen. So, you know, Olympic trials and all that, just in case. (laughs) Yeah. And then four years at that time, it was okay, you know, but for a lot of people, I mean, that was their only window Mm -hmm. to be able to make the Olympic team. Now, four years is, is a long time. I mean, as an elite athlete, Oftentimes, the way that I try and describe it to the lay person, if you think of an elite, an elite athlete in, in many sports, it's, a, it's like a carton of milk, you know, of, of dairy milk. You know, it has an expiration date <laughs> and, then, and, then, and then it goes bad. So, you know, you want to hit it when you're primed for it. Mm-hmm. And so there were so many athletes that just didn't quite have the motivation or you know, beyond their physical and mental peak. So they didn't make, make the Olymp- Olympic team. I mean, I was fortunate that I was able to make the Olympic team in 1984. And even those Olympics were boycotted by the Eastern Bloc countries. But then for diving, my competition was there. My competition was China. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that the results would have changed. I think they would have been the way that they, they turned out. Well, how how long did you like see it coming or did you, I mean, you said you were still training because you kind of knew about it. Like how, what was the timeline like going into trials versus when they actually kind of called it all off? Well, uh, it was, I think relatively early in the year that, uh, that Carter uh, made the announcement, but I, I just, I guess I kind of was in denial, you know, and I trained and, and I mean, I was bound and determined, <laughs> you know, I was going to get there, get there somehow, but I didn't know how, but, and, and, and it didn't happen, you know, which was in, incredibly disappointing for, for many, many athletes. The, the one thing that I think I, I relate more to is, okay, 
going into 84, I was successful, won my two gold medals, and then I I continued diving through the nationals because that was one of my other goals was to break Cynthia Potter's record for national titles. How many did she have? How many did you have to get to break it? I think she had 26 and I, I got 27 or she had 27. And I, I, I don't know. It was, it was right around there in the nice. upper 20s. That's a lot of national titles. <laughs> yeah. So then I, you know, I was successful. I, I won the nationals and then I went to the president of USA diving at that time. And I said, look, you know, uh, it was Phil Boggs was the president. And I said, look, you know, I, I was one of the athlete reps that was pushing for trust funds to be put into place for the young divers coming up. I knew I wouldn't benefit from it, but the younger divers after me would. And he turned to me and he said, well, the only one that it affects is you and you're retiring. And so we don't need to spend the money on the attorneys to get trust funds put into place. And I turned to him and I said, fine, I'm not retiring. Do your homework. <laughs> so my intent was to get trust funds put into place and stay eligible and to ensure that the trust funds were put into place. Mm-hmm. Well, it took two years to get those trust funds put into place. And then I found myself at the world championships in Madrid, Spain. And so it's 86, successful. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so my coach, Ron O'Brien, he said, you know, I, I know you trust funds are in place. And you said that you would retire after the trust funds were put into place, but it's just two more years. And so I thought about it. I was like, uh, yeah, two years isn't too much. You know, I think I can hang in there for two years, you know, especially at being successful at the world championships. Mm-hmm. And so two years didn't seem that much. And I think that's where I relate more to the one year postponement. Mm -hmm. A year is not that far off. And also it gives a lot of the athletes, you know, depending on how they, how they deal with it. And what I've been really encouraging the athletes to look at it is, okay, look at where you're at in your training. You know, is there anything that you could have improved on? Are you, are you where you wanted to be or are you not where you wanted to be? And so you know what you need to do in order to prepare for next year. So you're looking forward and, and planning. Right. Well, so, okay, I have a question. So from 1980 and then you won Worlds also in 1982 going into 84, but like was not being able to go in 1980 a fuel for your fire compared to Ooh. 86 where you're, where you're <laughs> hanging on. What's your fuel at that point? Yeah. Okay. So my, basically my career, uh, 1976 was my first Olympic games. I was an Olympic silver medalist in 1976. I was doing quite well. And then I was world champion in 1978 on men's platform. Mm -hmm. So going in and I was coming up in the ranks for springboard, I was getting much more, getting stronger and becoming more dominant on springboard and the maturity that it takes to kind of really set your stride. Right. Cause you, cause you were just 16 in 1976. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I was 16 in my first Olympic games. And then I was 18 at my at the world championships, just starting college. And then in and then we had the boycott of 1980. And then I was at the world championships in 82 in Guayaquil, Ecuador. And I remember we got through the prelims of men's three meter. 
and I won the prelims. Mm -hmm. And so we went in reverse order of finish. So I was the last one introduced. And then each person was, each diver was introduced and their accolades and all that. Well, Alexander Portnoff was introduced as Olympic gold medalist, 1980. Oh. And then I was introduced and I stepped out and I said, Greg Luganis, Olympic silver medalist, 1976. <laughs> and I'm like going, oh my God, he's an Olympic gold medalist. And I started thinking, you know what? You were a gold medalist because I wasn't there. And so I, I always wanted my performance to speak for itself. I didn't want to have to speak for, you know, tout my own horn right, or, right. Or, or anything like that. So, you know, I was, I was out there to prove something. And so, you know, as it turned out, I was going through the competition. Things were going really, really well. And then I don't generally look at the scoreboard. And so on my last dive, I'm the last diver in that event. And I see the, see my dive number. And then I see my score flashing, Uh-oh. which meant that I didn't have to do my last dive. Oh, no way. Yeah. <laughs> I did not have to do my last dive to win. Wow. And so I was thinking, okay, you know, whatever you do, don't do a cannonball. <laughs> that would be, that, that would, that would look really bad. <laughs> right. um, but I, you know, I did my front three and a half, nailed it. And I think it was the highest point spread in winning a world championship or, you know, major international competition like that. So I kind of made my point. Right. Definitely. I would say. <laughs> yeah. So I, I didn't have to speak for, speak for myself. Now, the one thing that divers do ask is, you know, what happens when the diver ahead of you nails their dive? Doesn't that distract you? And I said, yeah, it, it, it does. But the one thing that I have to remind myself in those situations, like when Shunni was leading going into the last dive, I had to remind myself that they're the crowd was just going nuts. I mean, the verb, the uh, vibration of the you know, of the audience, it was just incredible. You know, when he nailed his last dive, I had to remind myself that they were cheering for him and not against me, you know, because we take things so personally, but really the most distracted that I've ever been in any type of world-class competition, and that was in world championships, at Guayaquil in 82 is I, I was the, in the finals of the men's platform and I got straight tens on my fourth dive, my inward one and a half. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, Oh my God, how, what do I do? Because I, now everybody's going to expect straight tens on the next dives. I was like, how can I do better than that? And so, um, you know, I did my next dive didn't do it very well. I was like, now that's over with, you know, so I got the worst part over, but I, and then I was able to come back and hit my stride and, and be successful there. But that was really the most distracted I've ever, ever been in any major competition is when I got straight tens. So you distracted yourself. Yeah. I mean, it was like, oh, because you, you do something like that. It's, it's what you dream of, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden it happens. It's like, oh my God, now what? Right. You know? In the middle of the event. Yeah, that's uh, not good. <laughs> it's not good. But you know what? It's, it's a learning opportunity. 
Yeah. You know, I, I learned a tremendous amount from that competition. Oh, that's awesome. I love it. Well, so how how did that compare to 86 going, okay, I can hang on for two years? Like, what's your motivation there? Yeah, you can hang on, but like, where do you get that fire again? You know, it was it was really very challenging because the one thing between, you know, especially between 82 and 80, no, 86 and 88, especially those two years, I really loved training. I loved the sport of diving. I, I, I just, there was no place I wanted to be on this earth. And so I just loved it. I loved going to the pool. What I didn't love I had competed for so long. I'd been on the world stage competing for many, many years. And so because of the expectations others have, mm-hmm. they as, as soon as I step on the board, they were expecting an Olympic performance every time I stepped on the board. Well, that's really unreasonable. You know, and, and the thing that, I, you know, I, I, as a conscientious, conscientious person, I want to give it to them. You know, but I wasn't, it, it was really not, it, 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 it wasn't feasible. Right. It's not realistic. You know, yeah. to, it, it's not realistic. It's not a realistic expectation. So it took a lot of the fun out of competition for me. Mm-hmm. And so, but I did love training. I think that's a really good point to make because I think a lot of times as athletes, if you mess up in front of people, you just think it's the end of the world or that's how people think of you also. When if I looked at somebody amazing who just happens to have a bad meet or misses a dive, I don't think they're suddenly a bad diver or a bad person. I just think, oh, they had a bad day. But I don't <laughs> yeah. give myself that same relief, I right, guess, you know, that same. <laughs> we're harder on we're harder on ourselves. Yes, definitely. We're so much harder on ourselves. Gosh, I remember one national championships. We had this elderly couple that would follow us all over the country. And, you know, and I won prelims and they came to me and said, Oh, you were a little off today. I hope you do better tomorrow. Oh, <laughs> like, no I, way. I, well, I won, I won prelims. It's just a prelims. You know? Wow. So, but, you know, but it, you know, you, you become sensitized to, you know, what other people think. And, and and all and then and also learning what do you do with that you know what do you do with that information what do you do with that information how do you process that one thing that i i would always do is i always consider the source and if it didn't come from my coach then it really didn't matter you know because my coach knows what i'm working on you know he knows the progression progressions that i've made improvements that i've made and so he really knows there are plenty of people who try and throw you off. You know, they have ulterior motives. There are plenty of people, you know, because it's it, it's it, it's human nature to root for the underdog. Right. And for many, many years, I was not the underdog. So I was not the person that people were rooting for. And I always wanted my performance to speak for itself. I didn't want to have to speak for my performance and the proof is in the pudding. So I, I didn't want to have to speak for it. So I had to do the work and I had to perform. And that was my commitment to myself. I love that. Well, you mentioned your coach and I know Ron O'Brien was your longtime coach and you started with Sammy Lee, but you and Ron, you guys went through a lot together. How did you guys build that coach athlete trust over time? Like, what do you think are some of those essential qualities for top level coaches to possess? You know, I think the most important thing is 
to observe and listen because I remember our breakthrough competition. I, I started diving with him full time in 1978, and that was my first world championships. And it was in Berlin, and it was miserable weather. It was kind of rainy, overcast, and we didn't. And it, it cold. I'm a fair weather diver. I love diving outdoors. I love diving in the sun. I love the heat. And so I was not happy. <laughs> and so I was going through workout. And it was also stressful because I had just stopped diving with Dr. Sammy Lee. And Dr. Sammy Lee was one of the judges in Berlin. So he was at the pool every one of my workouts. So is that awkward? It was. I mean, I popped my head up out of the water and I'd for, I'd look at Dr. Lee first oh, no. and, then I'd look, and then I'd look at Ron. I mean, I, I was just like this ball of tension. Yeah. And so then I was having a really miserable workout and I was in the shower, hot shower to try and get warm up under the three meter. And Ron came over and kicked me in the butt. And I turn around and I'm like, oh, and he's walking away. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm, I'm, I know I'm diving terrible and I'm not diving the, the way that I could or should be. And then I realized on the elevator, I, I told him we had a dinner at his house. And I said, you know what? I do, I dive the best when I'm having fun and I'm joking around and I'm smiling. And I said, you have permission to kick me in the butt. If you see me do that. <laughs> and so then I realized that's what he was doing. He was kicking me in the butt. <laughs> and so I started laughing and there was an elevator, you know, for us to go up to the 10 meter. And so I started laughing on the elevator and then I got my scowl on when I got ready for my dive and I scowled down at him and said, Ron, watch this, you know, and then I did my dive, nailed it, my front three and a half pike. And he said, that's better. Oh my God. And then I stick, stuck my tongue out at him. <laughs> and so what happened is he, after that training session, he pulls me aside. I said, okay, Craig, what's going on? You know, talk to me, just talk to me. And, you know, I talked about Dr. Lee feeling that. And, but really what was really going on at that comp competition was I was 18. It was the end, end of summer. And I was going from that competition to university of Miami. And I was already homesick. Yeah. So then once we got to the, the core of what was going on, he said, okay, I'm going to make a deal with you. I'm going to talk. CBS was covering that competition and said, I'm going to talk to the uh, CBS people. And if you win, they have a direct line to the States and you can call your parents, you can call your mom and you can talk as long as you want. That's some good incentive. Yeah. And he said, would that make things better? I said, yeah. And so then that was the incentive that that's what kind of got me to pull myself together and, and get, get focused because I could reach out after that competition and talk as long as I wanted to, to my mom. Uh, I think that speaks to, to like having good people around you. I mean, how important mm -hmm. are the people that you surround yourself with? Oh, the people that you surround yourself with, it's so important. I mean, it really is a reflection of who you are, you know, and what kind of person you are. And so, yeah, I mean, your friends are incredible. 
And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that I've had so many of the people that are in my life in my life. Well, and I know back when you faced your major first Olympic team, you were 16 years old. And you mentioned when you were talking to our team, like a couple of weeks ago, you kind of mentioned that you had some feelings about being on that team. Like maybe people didn't think you should have been on it. How did you kind of handle walking through that? And that kind of just, I'm I'm sure just wreaked havoc on your mindset, your anxiety, Mm -hmm. like all of those things, just a stress. Well, I, I was the youngest on the team. Well, shoot, Nadia Komenich and I were the youngest on on the at the Olympics. I think that that year, um, and I I didn't handle it well for the men's three meter because I qualified for both three meter springboard and ten meter platform because I won the Olympic trials, and that was yeah divers who should have who uh, were supposed to make the team they missed a dive or two, you know, so they may have been by default. Well, I didn't handle it well in men's springboard. I didn't feel like I belonged there. I did not want to be there. But because of my training with Dr. Lee, he pushed me through those training days that I didn't feel like being there. And he said, what if you you find yourself at the Olympics and you feel that way? What are you going to do? And I said, oh, it's the Olympic Games. I'm never going to feel that way. Well, I did feel that way at the men's three-meter springboard prelims and finals. And I pushed through and I was able to make the finals. And I think I was eighth, seventh or eighth. And so it wasn't horrendous, but I I really didn't want to be there. But at least I was, I had the ability to push through and do the best that I could for that given day. 10 meter platform was a different story. Fortunately, I didn't read the press. That's one thing I learned very, very early on is not read your press Yeah, <laughs> because they were talking about these two young kids. There was a Soviet diver. It was a Soviet union at that time. And me going up against Klaus Diviasi, the grandfather of the sport or the father of the sport. He, he was just incredible. He was already a two-time gold medalist, right? Yeah. He was going for his third Olympic gold medal. And so it was supposed to be a a battle between the three of us. And all of my training sessions with Dr. Lee was all about beating Klaus. Every training session, okay, Klaus is ahead by 12. You need nines on this dive. Well, sometimes in training, I was successful. Sometimes I wasn't. So it was something that I was looking towards and focusing on. And, you know, so I was prepared. I wasn't really looking at anyone else. So that's where, where my focus was. You know, it was difficult because I went there to win. I did not go there to take second. So at 16, I missed my front three and a half, my second to last dive. And that's when Klaus just zoomed past me. And so then Dr. Samuel, he, he was so pissed off at me. He, he just yelled and cussed at me and he couldn't even be in the same room with me after I did that dive. And then he came back just before my last dive, my front one and a half, three twists. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, well, you, you missed that dive, but go out a champion, show him what you're made out of. And then all I could think of was that dive on that dive was the sooner I get off this platform, the sooner it'll be over. And I never have to do this again. Oh, wow. And so, you know, I did my dive and the award ceremony was 
it, it was like a public humiliation to me. I mean, I was so miserable standing on that stand. I felt like such a failure. It was really strange when I, when I was coming home with my parents, you know, people were like staring at me and it's like, you know, thinking, oh, it's my fly down or something. <laughs> Why are these people staring at me, you know, checking my clothes, making sure, you know, everything's on. And my mom said, well, it's because they saw you on TV in the Olympics. I said, no. <laughs> and then when I got home, I mean, there were crowds of people and they were celebrating and it was a really awkward time for me because all these people were celebrating my accomplishments and I felt like a failure. So I had a lot of work to do on myself, you know, to kind of pull myself together. And, uh, and, and that was challenging. That was challenging. I mean, did you finally get to the point, though, where you realized what an accomplishment that was? Or do you still look back on it with a little like, uh? You know, it, it took many, many years. I mean, I wouldn't even pick up my silver medal. Wow. You know, I, I, I wouldn't touch it for years. But it, it took probably, you know, five years before I, I held that medal with any type of pride and thought, wow, you know what? I was still in high school. <laughs> <laughs> and and I came back with an Olympic silver medal. That's pretty awesome. Definitely something to be proud of, but I can totally understand where your head was for sure. So fast forward to 1984, you're finally at the Olympics. It's not being boycotted by the U.S. You're going to be there. It's in the U.S., which is huge, I would imagine, but probably also a lot of pressure. Like, and you're the reigning world champion in both events. Like, were you like, yes, this is my time. I'm finally here. Or were you like, wow, this is a lot. It was a combination of all of that. It was crazy. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I trained really hard. I felt really prepared. So that gave me confidence. But oftentimes it's easier to be in a foreign country, especially if you don't understand the language, because you don't know what people are, say are saying. <laughs> they could be talking to you. They don't necessarily have to be talking to you. And it's easy to ignore. But in the States, I remember I was going over for the men's 10 meter platform finals. I was going through security and one of the security guards said, hey, Luganus, you going to bring the gold home for us today? And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I my head can't go there. Uh, but <laughs> the, the, the one thing that Mary Jane, Ron O'Brien's wife, got me a Paddington teddy bear. And so then... No, no, she got she got me Garvey. She she, she was the one who got me a Garvey teddy, teddy bear. And so I turned to Garvey and I said, people say the dumbest things, don't they? <laughs> you know, as you know, after this guy said that and, and they really do. I mean, the intention is is good. The intention is positive, but it can be kind of not where your head needs to be, because I knew that my head needed to be one dive at a time each dive, you know, do the best that I can in that moment in time. I cannot be thinking about results. You know, that's another thing too, that some people understand, you know, but most people don't, is that it was never my goal to win gold. Really? Yeah. My goal was to have the best performance that I could on that given time and, and just be the absolute best that I could be. I love that. And that probably comes from your performance background, too. I'm sure you were an acrobat growing up, a performer. Yeah. And, you know, the, the results will take care of themselves because I have no control over what the judges, the scores the judges 
throw up. I don't have any control over what my fellow competitors are going to do. I do have control over what I, how I perform. And that's the only thing that I have control of because we have control. And this pandemic is proof. We have such little control ultimately. Yeah. But we do have control of what we do, what we say and what we think. Oh, that's perfect. Well, so when we fast forward to another Olympic Games, which would be your fourth Olympic Games, third one to compete at 88 in Seoul, most people remember you for this moment when you hit your head on the board and, you know, you came back to win that event, but then also the platform event. And this is after agreeing, all right, two more years, I could handle that. Like, tell us kind of the whole story there. I know this is kind of classic, but maybe a lot of people don't know your version of the story other than what they've seen on TV. Yeah. Well, 88 was a very challenging year because six months prior to the Olympic Games, I was diagnosed HIV positive. I was also in a very, in, in a very abusive relationship. It was pretty, you know, pretty brutal. The one saving grace was as long as I was in Florida training, my home was in California, we weren't together. So that Florida was kind of a safe haven for me. And then being HIV, HIV positive diagnosis, I needed to take care of myself and heal in, on so many levels, uh, on a physical level, emotional level. And so I poured myself into my diving, you know, because as, as long as I was in the pool and training, HIV didn't exist, nor did my relationship. So is that kind of your safe space? That was my, that was my safe, safe space. It was uh, my sanctuary, you know? And so that was really, I think the reason why I'm probably here today, you know, I'm so grateful for that. And so then when all of that was going on in 88, hitting my head on the board, also what was going on was Ron O'Brien's mother went into a coma. She was very ill and she slept, slipped into a coma and Ron didn't know if he was staying with us, the divers, or going home and taking care of family stuff. And so we were really, really connected and committed to each other. And so he, he decided to stay and thank God, because I couldn't have gotten through that Olympic Games without him, because we were the only two on the pool deck at that time who knew about my HIV status. You know, that, that was pretty scary. When I hit my head, my, my fear was what was my responsibility and I knew I didn't have a responsibility, you know, I, you know, to disclose it, you know, that, that was, that was a private matter in the Olympic committee and all that. But after the injury, then what was my responsibility? You know, my responsibility was the, to the doctor. So I, there was, I, I, I wrote in my book, Breaking the Surface, I was paralyzed by fear and I truly was. And it was easier for me to, and probably the healthiest thing for me was to focus on my diving. I had something else positive to focus on, you know, rather than, you know, the whole scenario, it was too much to take in. And so with the help of Ron, we pushed through and got through. So, I mean, do you think having diving to focus on almost made once you hit your head, because of all the stuff that you were worried about being able to focus on the dive instead of being scared of going into your next round. Cause it was the same. It was another reverse action, right? Toward the board and you stood it right up and did it well. Yeah. I guess, was it that focus being able to take your focus away from the fear and the HIV and all of that worry and focus back on the diving? You know, it was, uh, 
when uh, Ron came to me after I had my head sewn up, he came to me and he said, look, you can walk away and nobody's going to fault you for that. And I will back you a hundred percent, but it's your choice. And kind of knee jerk reaction. I response, I, I told, I said, Ron, we've worked too long and hard to get here. And I don't want to give up without a fight. He said, okay, come on, let's go for a walk. And so we walked down the corridors and, and he was going on about how hockey players get 30 stitches and they get back on the ice. You got five <laughs> stitches in your head. It's nothing, you know? And so we were laughing, you know, we were just kind of joking around about the whole situation. And then, um, you know, when it came time to do the dive, cause like I hit on a reverse two and a half pike. You're right. I was doing a reverse one and a half, a three and a half twist for my second dive. My third dive last dive was reverse three and a half. So, and I knew this was the Olympics. I couldn't hold back. And I was afraid that I was out of the finals. Because this was in prelims, correct? Because this was in prelims, yeah. You know, so I set the fulcrum and then they announced the dive. And then I could hear an audible gasp from the audience. And then I took a deep breath and I patted my chest. And the people who saw me do that, they realized, oh my God, we're afraid for him. He's afraid. Oh my God. And I just started laughing. I started chuckling to myself. You know, I was like, oh my God, these people are like in my corner. They're rooting for me. So like, okay, you know, just do the dive like you've been training it. Do the dive and allow your body to do what it was trained to do. And whatever's going to happen is going to happen. And so I gave it my all, didn't hold back. And even that dive, reverse one and a half to three and a half twist, Ron said I was still a little close yeah, uh. <laughs> on that dive. And then so when it came to my, my final reverse three and a half, I guess he realized that I was in the finals with, you know, with not too much of a problem. He said, you know what, on your reverse three and a half, jump it out. Yeah, <laughs> smart move. <laughs> not out in the middle of the pool, but just jump it out a little bit. <laughs> so, yeah. So we... And, and, you know, like Ron knew me so well, he knew that if, if I was laughing, having fun, dancing around, you know, then I, I was in a good place. And oftentimes if I, if I would be a little bit more subdued, quiet, and if I hand him my chamois, then he knows he needs to pay a little closer attention. Oh, okay. So it was like a cue. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't realize I I did that, but he pointed that out to me when we were working on the book Breaking the Surface. Oh, how funny! Oh my God. I, I said I didn't think you you noticed that. I said, yeah, yeah, I noticed that. He said, yeah, when you started ha handing me your chamois, I knew that that you were feeling a little insecure and you needed a little bit more attention. Wow, that's that's really cool, and it goes back to what you're saying about the coach really needing to understand their athlete, and and I love that in that moment. You said you hadn't been an underdog for so long because you'd been doing well. But in that moment, you kind of became the underdog that everyone was cheering for again, which is yeah. a pretty cool moment. In that split second, I, I then became the underdog. And, and the other thing that happened is that, okay, Ron was distracted with everything that was going on in his world. I was distracted with everything that was going on, on in my world. And then once I hit my head on the board, it's like, oh my God, we really got to focus. You know, so it really kind of drew our, our focus to being there, present and in the moment because nothing is guaranteed. 
Uh, that just kind of points out how when we go through challenges, whether it's a COVID virus or it's hitting the board in the middle of the most important event of your life, that those challenges can still present opportunities and they can there can still be good things coming from them. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I mean, that that's like what's going on right now is, you know, how how resilient can we all be? You know, how creative and also, you know, with everything's that's going on. I mean, there, the bad stuff, there's good stuff that's happening. I mean, wildlife is coming back. Air quality is coming back. I mean, there's, there's so many positives, you know, there's a lot of people who are looking after their neighbors and just scores of people showing their humanity and their goodness. And, and that is, that's priceless. I mean, spending more time with, with your kids, spending more time with your animals, with your pets slowing down probably too in our busy, crazy lives. I think it's been good for everyone to, well, some of us have slowed down more than others if you don't have <laughs> a bunch of kids in the house driving you crazy. But <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I think I agree. It's been beautiful to watch. Just think of how many creative things that you've kind of pulled from your past to, to give to your kids now. Oh yeah, for sure. Games and, 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 you know, just different things to play and activities. Oh Yes. It's been really good. I agree. I love that. Well, I, I wanted to ask a couple of things that you, again, talked about to our team the other day. One of them, now for our non-diving audience, I want to explain what a balk is. So a balk <laughs> is when you walk down the springboard and you stop before you go off the board and you start over. And there's a deduction for that in a competition. But most divers do this a number of times every single practice. If they don't feel like their takeoff's good, they're scared they're going to get close or not make it, they won't go. But Greg, I heard that you have only balked like a handful of times in your entire career. Explain that. Well, okay. My coach, Ron O'Brien, he said he can count on one hand the number of times, and I dived for him for 10 years, and he, he could count on one hand the number of times he's seen me balk. And the reason for that is I always thought of a bad takeoff was a great opportunity because you're never going to get, you're rarely going to get a perfect takeoff in a major competition because stress level levels are high. You're a little bit more anxious. And so when in practice, if I had a bad takeoff, if my balance was off, I would see how successful I could be with that bad takeoff. I know it's not going to be tens, but I'm going to, you know, I'm going to fight for a six and a half. Right. Because a six and a half is much better than a four, three or four. <laughs> so, I mean, a six and a half can keep me in the game. So I always felt that it was important that I went on everything. And the reason for that is basically like what you said, my dance training, my dance background, as soon as they start that music, then you have to finish. If you're performing, nobody's going to know, nobody knows the choreography, you got to fake it to, you know, till you get back on, back in it <laughs> because they're not going to start the music over. And so that's how I was brought up. That's how I was trained. I mean, I was performing on stage since I was three. So that was my, my training at a very, very early age. And that was one of the lessons that I carried through into my diving is that, okay, the performance starts as soon as you set the fulcrum, you know, as soon as you set that board, you're on. I love it. 
I love that so much. That's I'm so glad you shared that with us. A bad takeoff is a great opportunity. I mean, that's just so good for so many lessons in our life, I think, that just because it doesn't look great doesn't mean you can't make something great out of it. Exactly. Exactly. You also mentioned on our little talk that you didn't have any real like heroes growing up. Tell us why. Oh, oh my God. (laughs) You know, there were there were people that that I admired and I admired things that they did. I admired the way that they did. But, you know, looking at the whole person, I, you know, I never had a hero because they may do do something really well, but not so great on be not so great in other things. So nobody could really live up to a hero status in in my eyes. I always wanted to be better. I, I, I always wanted to challenge myself to be better. You know, there are incredible athletes out there that you can admire what they do and appreciate what they do, but to have hero status, they, you know, they may not treat certain, you know, people in the service nicely, you know, or they might get hung up on their, their press media. You know, they, they may believe their press. I don't know. You know, it's, you know, it's, nobody could live up to that. So there were aspects of people that I admire, but I, it was always my goal. Emulate what, what you admire, but be your own person. I like that a lot. Well, you, you already have legend status in diving and really, I mean, in all of sports history, but what do you want to be remembered for? Like, how do you want to be remembered? You know, I, I, I've had this question asked, and if I'm remembered, if, if I'm remembered as a diver, I hope I'm remembered as being strong and graceful. If I'm remembered as a person, I, I hope I'm remembered as ma- having made a difference. I absolutely love that. And you will be remembered. I don't think that's an if. You've made an impact on so many millions of people around the world, I'm sure. I am one of them. I grew up watching you and just thinking you were amazing. So thank you for everything that you've done, for who you are, and for sharing with us today. Sure. My pleasure. Thank you so much. It's great talking to with you, with you, Laura. You too. Oh, and I have to ask, do you remember doing Synchro with me in 2016? We were pretty good. Yeah, that was that was so much fun. I'm so glad that we did that. I am too. It kind of was like, I don't know, made my whole life. So I really appreciate it. It was a big deal to me. (laughs) You're too sweet. Thank you so much for tuning in today. And please be sure to subscribe, rate and review our show. This allows us to keep bringing on amazing guests. And it also helps other athletes to find this show. Make sure to check out the show notes to follow us on social media and learn more about our awesome guest. To hear all of our amazing episodes, head on over to thepursuitofgold.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. The Pursuit of Gold is proud to be a Podigy production. That's all for now. Make sure to tune back in next week.